Good morning from me. My name's Peter. I'm uh, one of the pastors out here. It's good to be here. The last uh, few days, I've spoken to a few people about how things are going on. Sorry, not what is going on, but how things are going in their life. And uh, the reports have been mostly good. But some of the conversations I've had with people have left me with this question. And it's a genuine question. Um, I, I wonder what you're really supposed to be doing. Now that, I don't, it, it, that's not a question that's coming out of me having a particular opinion about what the person should be doing, but they're kind of telling me about a bunch of things that are going on. And I just think, well, I wonder what you're supposed to be doing. I wonder what you're really supposed to be doing. Uh, again, I'm not saying uh, that they should be doing something else, but sometimes we can end up doing a bunch of things that we're probably not necessarily needing to do. Uh, a bit of a sideshow, so to speak. I think uh, COVID has kind of exposed that for us uh, culturally, that uh, people have just gone, hang on, I'm just doing a whole bunch of things. And it's not that they're doing bad things. It's like I'm just doing a whole bunch of things that I, I, don't, I don't think is really me. I don't think it's really what I need to be doing. You know, being clear about the centre of what we're supposed to be doing eventually makes its way out into the details of our lives. When we aren't clear about what we're supposed to be doing, we can end up doing a bunch of things, often good things, which busy up our lives, but they aren't really what we are supposed to be doing. Today we're going to look at a section of the Gospel of John where God's people find themselves doing something which isn't evil on the surface, but it's something they shouldn't be doing. Uh, The wrong place, the wrong time. So let's have a read of the section out of the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, if you can turn to your Bibles, that'd be great. If you're new to church, the Gospel of John is a, um, an eyewitness account of uh, the person of Jesus. Um, John chapter 2, starting at verse 12 today. John chapter 2, verse 12. After this... He, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Uh, The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house house of trade his disciples remember that it was written zeal for your house will consume me now just want to make a quick note here because some of you observant folk would notice that uh, this is pretty early in Jesus' story that there's a clearing of the temple Um, and you would notice that in Matthew Mark and Luke the clearing of the temple happens at the end of Jesus's ministry and so you could ask the question uh, what's going on is there a contradiction that exists here and I just want to give you a couple of thoughts on that just to clear the deck so that we can read the rest of the scripture here's the first one Uh, back in the day and I've done a bunch of reading on this what the gospel writers are actually doing it appears and there's quite a lot of recent kind of scholarship on this is they're writing biography that's what they're actually doing they're writing a biography and you just need to know that um, people who are writing biographies back in the day didn't actually care that much about chronology it just didn't matter that much to them. What mattered to them was telling a good story that helps you to understand the person that they're talking about. 
okay? So what you will actually find in the Gospels is you'll find that time is going to get shifted around a bit. Some things are going to happen here and then they're going to happen over here somewhere else. Some things are going to happen really quickly in this space and they're going to look like they happen a lot longer over here. And uh, you shouldn't be too bothered by that um, because that, that's one of the realities. The, the other thing you need to realise about the Gospels is that they arrange, the Gospel writers arrange things topically, not chronologically. So you can just expect that the times and dates are just going to shift around a little bit and not be in exactly the same places. The other thing I'll just note quickly here for you is it's actually possible and there's a lot of theologians who argue that there wasn't just one clearing of the temple, there was actually two, um, which would make sense, I think, if there was. The temple was a bit of a mess. Uh, Jesus kind of came in and cleaned it up and then if he had to do it three years later, no one would be particularly surprised about that. Uh, human nature would kind of lead us in that direction. There's, there's a couple of little caveats to clear the decks for you. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to uh, talk to you about that later on. But let's keep reading. Verse 18 of John 2. So the, Jew, the, uh, sorry, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're really asking him, what authority are you doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, this morning is going to be a little different from me. So I uh, really hope that you can hang with me. It's going to be a little bit more teachy and less preachy. Uh, today so let's uh, start here and look at the temple the reality is if you if you don't get your head around what the temple was meant to be then you won't really understand this story Um, this is uh, verse 13 to 14 Uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the temple he went into the temple Uh, you need to go right back to the beginning of uh, the world and even just a step before that to understand the nature of the temple the first four words of the bible are in the beginning god in the beginning god and you could stop there and you could ponder that for a while who is god what is he like It'd be good questions to answer we could do that um, but let me tell you something about god that is unique to christianity god is personal and he's tri-personal Okay, God is personal and he's tri-personal. He exists as one God but three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this crew create the world. That's what they do. Um, and at the pinnacle of their creative efforts, they create humanity in their Im- image. And our personhood comes from God. And I think is actually a reflection of God himself. Then we find that after God's created the world, we have the the big kind of Hollywood, kind of blockbuster CGI version of creation in Genesis chapter 1. We get to chapter 2 and it's God getting up close. A transcendent God becomes imminent or expresses his imminence, which is his closeness. I shouldn't say becomes imminent because he is transcendent and imminent all the time. And God plants a garden in Eden, the region of Eden. That's why it's called the Garden of Eden because it's a garden in Eden. Did you get that? Um, this place, this garden, is a garden of flourishing. And the reason why it flourishes is because God's there. 
That's why it flourishes. There is shalom there. Everything works properly. Shalom isn't just peace. It's actually everything functioning and operating properly. And God walks around in the garden. That's what he does. Here's, some, uh, here's a picture for you with some well-placed leaves, as is often the case. Um, <clears throat> we don't have time today, but we could, just, we could spend a few weeks, I reckon, looking at the features of the Garden of Eden and how they actually align with the temple later on. If you go into Kings and you look at the, the, the design and the building of the temple that Solomon built, um, that, that he oversaw, what you will see is you'll see lush, flourishing things in the temple. Lots of fruit, lilies, plants. It is just, it's a sweet, sweet place. The reason why it's a sweet, sweet place is because God's there. God's in the garden. He's in the garden. God is a God who is with. He is not a deistic God that creates the world and winds it up like some kind of spring-loaded clock and then he disappears and hopes it all goes well for you. He is a God who dwells with his people. And that's what a, that's what a person does, right? This is the person of God. It's an expression of his per- personhood. If you go through the Old Testament, there's this covenant formula that happens, pops up, all the time through the Old Testament. And if you're, if you're new to the church, you go, oh, what the heck's a covenant? Just think of, think of it this way. It's the rules for a relationship. When people get married, they form a covenant with each other and there are rules, there are vows that they make to each other. And we see in 2 Corinthians 6, this familiar covenantal pattern, and this is it. I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, what's critical to who God is and who God's people is, is that he dwells with them. He dwells with them. But here's the question, how does God dwell with his people? Well, it's interesting, right? Because the Garden of Eden was a temple, but humanity turned upon him and God kicked him out. What is God dwelling with? How does he do that post-Eden after they've been kicked out? Well, he shows up from time to time, but before long, um, God calls his people out of Egypt and uh, they're out at Mount Sinai and God is giving instructions on the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent, a portable building, that they could carry around with them where God would dwell with them. And it was meant to be right in the middle of the camp. And you'll notice here that there's three courts. There's like the outer court and then you've got the, uh, the inner court in there and then you've got the Holy of Holies in the back where the, um, kind of where the smoke's coming out. Remember Eden? You had the world, the region of Eden and the garden in Eden. You've got three courts and you'll find this the whole way through is that there's, there's three courts. Now, one of the great ironies about the uh, instructions God's giving for the, uh, the construction of the tabernacle to the Israelites, he's giving it to Moses actually. The Israelites are there at uh, Sinai and Moses is up on top of the hill 
God's given these instructions about how he's going to come and dwell in their midst. And do you know what the people did right in the middle of God's instructions? They said to each other, they said, let's make a God who will go before us. At the very time that God is on the hill saying, this is how I'm going to be with my people, the people are down the bottom building an idol. It's a sad, sad time. A bit of a mess. But in the end, the the tabernacle gets completed and we find out in, in Exodus 40 verse 34 that God's glory comes, his presence comes and it fills the tabernacle. And this was the place where people would actually come to meet with God. This is the place where they would come to offer sacrifices for their sins, the things that they'd done wrong. Well, as biblical history moves on, we, um, the Israelites end up in the promised land and, and David, King David, is, is passionate uh, about building a temple for God. And God says, no, nah, look, you've killed too many people, so you're not going to get that gig, but your son will, your son Solomon will. And so Solomon gets to work building this temple for God, which is a permanent structure to replace the tabernacle. If you look up on the screen there, just leave Herod's temple for the moment. Uh, you can see Solomon's temple on the left there. And down the bottom middle there, you can see the, um, the, the uh, perspective kind of size of uh, an NFL field in America. So it's, it's actually quite a big complex, uh, Solomon's temple. Uh, this is where God dwelt. 1 Kings 8 verse 10 to 11 says this, When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What happened? God came and he dwelled in the temple. That's not the only place God dwells. God dwells everywhere. He's too big to fit in a temple. But he actually comes and he dwells in the temple. And what happens? Well, people can go and they can meet with God there. But what we actually find is that the people of Israel over time just got really rebellious. And they didn't want to do the things that God said. And prophet after prophet after prophet came to the Israelites and said, you need to stop what you're doing and come back to being faithful to me. But they never made it. They never really made it. We get to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 10 and there's this this scene of God's glory leaving the temple and what that meant was God's presence was leaving the temple and then the temple gets sacked and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar eventually some exiles get some stuff together and they come in and they start um, rebuilding the temple but it never reaches its former glory and God never dwells in it again the same way that he dwelt in it previously the Ark of the Covenant was gone. They got lost in the exile. That was the, the special box that, that uh, existed in the, um, in the Holy of Holies there. That disappeared. We get to 18 uh, BC and Herod uh, decides uh, he's a builder of great projects and he begins rebuilding the temple. Um, and, and interestingly, it's probably a political play to win over the favor of the jews interesting i mean i find that interesting because i mean here's david who's got a man after god's own heart and he's not allowed to build the temple but some random guy who just wants to do it for political favor favor gets gets to build it um and as you can see on the screen there herod's temple is massive massive and it was amazing 
It was incredible. Like you look at the details about how much stuff was gold-plated and, and the whiteness of some of the structures. I mean, it would have been hard to even look at this thing when the sun was shining on it. It'd be so, br- so bright. Um, you know, he rebuilt something which had fallen into disrepair over time on the site of the old temple, uh, something that had dis- um, fallen into disrepair over time and, and under the assault of armies. This is the place Jesus came to. He came to uh, Herod's temple. And you need to know that the temple theologically is a place where God is. It's the place where God's people come to meet with him. It doesn't matter how it came about. Jesus talks about the temple. He speaks of the temple as his father's house. You know, God's presence may not be there. His Shekinah glory may not be there like it was in the tabernacle or Solomon's temple. But there's still something special about this place. You know, this is the place where people come to sacrifice to God. This is why in the story here in John chapter 2 that there's animals being sold. You know, people coming from a long way away, they don't need to bring their sacrifices the whole way. When they get to town, they can buy the sacrifice and then they can go and offer it. This is why there's money changes in there because the temple tax, which needed to be paid by every Jewish male who was 20 years old or older, had to be paid in Tyrian coinage because of the high purity of the silver. So they had to actually change their money over to be able to pay their temple tax. Now, all this kind of feels fair enough at this point, doesn't it? You just, like, these people need to do it. This is, this is the way that you actually are faithful to God in his house. But I think it highlights a problem that we see the whole way through Scripture, that there's always complications when it comes to God dwelling with his people. And it's not him that's the problem. It's his people that are the problem because his people are imperfect. It's like, yeah, put a holy, righteous God together with sinners. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> like a lot. And what we see over time in Scripture is that people just, humanity mishandles the temple. You know, what we've got here in this story in, in John 2 is we've got uh, money changes, if I just um, go back there, if you look uh, on the right-hand end of Herod's temple, that's the women's courtyard and the court, courtyard of the Gentiles. That's where the money changers were. That's where the people were who were selling animals, pigeons. Now, if you're a woman or a Gentile, you couldn't go further in. That, that was the rules. The place where the women and the Gentiles went, Gentiles are anyone who was not a Jew, so pretty much all of us would have been... That would have been as far as you could get in, was that outside courtyard, okay? We're all in the same boat there. That's where they've set up this market. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, there's no problem if you're a Jewish male, is there? If you're a Gentile or you're a woman, there's a big problem. That's the space where you go to to connect with God. You know, this, this is in keeping, I think, with the mishandling of God in the context of the temple and the tabernacle that we actually see popping up reasonably regularly through history. There's story after story of people taking God for granted and not handling him 
with the honour he deserves through history. (laughs) You know what happens to most people who uh, mishandle God in the context of the temple or the tabernacle? They die. Yeah. (laughs) They die. Because it's a dangerous thing for a holy God to dwell with sinners. This is Leviticus 16 verse 1 to 2 if you know about the, um, the Day of Atonement. Um, in Leviticus 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who did the wrong thing. When they drew near before the Lord and died, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. What's he saying? You just can't come in and do whatever you want in this place. Don't think that you can do that. I'm just telling you now, you need to stop. You need to stop. People are dying because you're coming in and doing whatever you want. That's the history of it, right? And what we've got here is perhaps, perhaps to a lesser extent, we've got something similar a mishandling of God's house happening in this place. Now, you need to know that there had been other times where these kind of things weren't set up in the temple. They had been set up in the Kidron Valley, for example. But now they're in the temple courts and there's a racket going on. It's a racket. Um, This is the place where there should have been prayers and um, communion with God. And what's going on? Commerce, a marketplace. I mean, this is the place where all of us, unless you're a Jew, a Jewish male, this is the place where all of us is the only place that we could get to to actually meet with God. And it'd be like going and meeting with God and communing with God at People's Day at the show. You with me? It's just a racket. There's people everywhere. There's animals. And Jesus walks into the scene and he goes, this just won't do. This will not do. God's being dishonoured and people are being prevented from communing with God. So he fashions a whip and while he's strong in what he does, one commentator says he was not cruel. He was not cruel in what he did. Uh, And it bears some of the hallmarks. If you go back in the Old Testament to the prophecies about the Messiah, it bears the hallmarks of uh, the Messiah. In Malachi 3, it says he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. You see, it's personal for Jesus. I wonder if you see that there. It wasn't just that people were doing the wrong things. They were doing the wrong things in his dad's place. It was like his dad's place. He's like, you don't do that in my dad's house. You know, even though the Shekinah glory wasn't there in Herod's temple, it was still his father's house. And he was passionate about his father and what happened in his father's house. Interesting little um, statement there by John in John 2 verse 17, if you've still got it open there. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The scripture's taken from Psalm 69 and I really want to encourage you to go home this week and read Psalm 69. Read the whole lot. Um, it's, it's actually a pretty dark psalm. 
And it's dark because David, who is the, the one who wrote it, is so passionate for God that it creates trouble in people around him. And the trouble comes his way. Let me read you a uh, section of it, which includes the bit out of John chapter 2. Psalm 69, verse 7 to 9. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonour has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I mean, you should be able to get the vibe here. It's like David is so passionate about God and about God's house that it causes trouble. Other people don't like it. And here's here's the reality, folks. Um, And I don't say this in an ultimate sense. I say this in an experiential sense. The passionate pursuit of God and right relationship with with Him can sometimes be lonely. I want you to hear me. The passionate pursuit of God and right relationship with Him can sometimes be lonely. Do you know what I'm talking about? The psalmist's pursuit of God put him in the firing line with others. Brought a whole bunch of trouble his way. Look at Jesus in John 2. Who's helping Jesus? No one. No one's helping him. He cuts a lonely figure. And in a sense, you could say, well, he's the Messiah. And this is kind of part of his job. And so he would be on his own. And I'd say, yeah, yeah. But there's something about what Jesus does that was true for David as well, right? In Psalm 69. And if you are passionate about following Jesus with everything inside of you, there will be something about that that will be true for you as well. Have you ever been so passionate for God you were on your own? this have you ever stopped yourself being passionate for God because you didn't want others to disapprove of you it's like you got this setting where you go I'll go after God like that much but I'm not going to go the full tilt because that would be weird right yeah it's like I don't want people to think I'm a weirdo and Christians can be weirdos you can give me an amen for that yeah, okay. A bit more enthusiastically next time would be great, but because I know you feel it on the inside, right? You just go, yeah, I know you. We can be real weirdos. Call ourselves out. We we can't be weirdos. Unnecessary weirdos. But do you know Jesus was a weirdo here? To everyone else, he was a weirdo. And I'd ask you a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, Do you allow people around you to cap you? Do you? Do you like, I reckon there's a lot of you who go, oh, I just want to give it full throttle, but I'll just just back up a bit. Just just cap off the last 10% because that's where people are just going to go, ew. Do you allow other people to shape the way that you follow Jesus? Jesus didn't. David didn't. 
Now, don't hear me saying it ought to look like what Jesus is doing here all of the time, right? Because at best, we've probably got two clearings of the temple. He doesn't go around with a whip all the time and just be sorting people out like that all of the time. You know, I'm not asking you to walk around in your undies like God asked Isaiah to do for three years, right? But it will look like this kind of stuff in the temple sometimes if you're passionate about God. It'll just look like that. Let's finish here. True temple. Have a look at um, John 2 verse 18 to 21. Just want to read it again. What have just dropped out a little bit from some of our memories. So the Jews said to him, John 2, 18, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You notice what's going on here. Uh, the Jews are really asking, What authority do you have to sort out the temple? It's a good question. They want a sign. This is kind of like, uh, prove to me something, make me believe something. It's kind of, and here's just a side note, a quick side note. You know the whole thing that, that happens sometimes when, when, when you, uh, probably in your own life, but sometimes when you're uh, talking to other people about Jesus, they go, prove to me that God exists. And it's like, well, you know, God's not a trained dog, right? You know, and, and this is kind of what's going on here with the... Um, What's going on here with the Jews is it's like, get, do a trick. Do some kind of trick to show us something. And, and the reality is that, you know, if someone's determined not to believe something, no sign's going to convince them anyway. Because they'll find way to, some kind of way to, um, to argue against it. What does Jesus say? What's the sign? He says the temple's going to get knocked down and rebuilt in three days and they're flabbergasted because of how long it took to actually build the temple. But what Jesus was talking about was his body. He was talking about his death and then his resurrection. You see, Jesus was the temple that every single other temple points to. Eden wasn't just a temple. It was a temple that pointed to Jesus. The reason why it flourished is because he was in there. The tabernacle pointed to Jesus. The temple pointed to Jesus. Solomon's temple he, ironically, was the one who had the most authority to come in and sort out a temple because he was the true temple. He knew what the temple was all about. The temple he was talking about was his body. And the sign that he had the authority to do what he did in the temple was his death and resurrection. Jesus is the source of all flourishing. Jesus' body is the meeting place between God and humanity. And I, and I just want to say something to you this morning, and I'm just going to get preachy here a bit because this, this fires me up. It's a safe place to meet with God. It's not like the tabernacle where people get smoked for doing the wrong thing. It's not like Solomon's temple where you can get into trouble for doing the wrong thing. It's not even like Herod's temple. When you come to Jesus and you give your life to him and you ask him to forgive you and you trust in him, all your sins that were paid for on the cross are just, they're done. They're done. That's the moment where it all gets activated in that moment. And so you can't actually do anything to get smoked anymore. Is that good news? Like you can come really, really close to God.
He went to the cross, he paid for all our sins. You know, even in the Old Testament sacrificial system where you had these sacrificial um, opportunities to go and get your sin dealt with, Hebrews 10 tells us it never actually got the job done. Even the sacrifices back then were pointing forward to this sacrifice that was coming. It was going to square things away. Even the Old Testament Jews, when they sacrificed, needed to look forward by faith to a better sacrifice that was coming. And that's what we get with Jesus. And so, you know what? You can come to God. You can bring anything to Him. All of your shame, all of your sin, all of your mess, all of your brokenness. And He, I want you to hear me, He is your safe place. He is the safest place that exists safer than the most loving spouse safer than the most loving parent you can meet with God you can be nourished you can receive life and hope and not be smoked now let me finish here Um, let me just take you through a brief history of the temple because I'm just going to take one more step and then I'll be done. It started with the Garden of Eden, right? Garden of Eden's darker green because it had the, uh, the presence of God there. Um, and it's a bookend of the story, and you'll see that in a minute. And then the tabernacle gets constructed, and the, uh, uh, God dwells in the tabernacle. Then Solomon's temple gets constructed, and uh, God dwells in that. But then God, God leaves it. Um, the second temple gets rebuilt it's red because God doesn't actually come and dwell in that uh, like he had done previously and then we have Herod's temple we've got the same uh, same problem there uh, but God's people still kind of coming to that to meet with him to commune with him to, to sacrifice then what we actually have is a little explosion in temples which sounds a bit weird maybe to some of you especially if you're new um, Jesus is the temple and then we find out in the New Testament that uh, the church in Ephesians 2 it tells us that the church the gathering of God's people is God's temple because he dwells that's the meeting place of God and humanity and then each child of God is we find this out in um, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit what does that mean? well that's the place where God dwells Because the reality is when you come to faith, when you trust in God, what happens is God gives you His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. God really is inside of you. And so there's actually a meeting between humanity and God in us. And the good news is, we're getting back to Eden. Who wants to go back to Eden? But a better one. Who wants that? Yeah? Yeah, we're getting back to Eden. That's what's going on. You go and read Revelation 22, you read all about it. God will be with his people uninterruptedly. But let me, let me finish with this today. How much racket is going on in your temple? If, if everyone who loves Jesus... their bodies are the temple of uh, of god temple of the holy spirit 
How much racket's going on in your temple? And I don't mean how many times you get interrupted. Um, now there's lots of ways that we could have some racket going on inside of our temple, right? Um, let me give you a few. We, we could just be really busy doing stuff. Um, lots of jobs to do around the place. And uh, lots of these jobs, it's like, oh, you just need to do those before you can relax. And I can understand you, and I hear you, uh, but I want you to know that Psalm 127 also talks about anxious toil. And uh, our desire to get everything squared away and get stuff sorted out, you know, if we bump God to the end, you know, that can kind of consume us internally, right? And it's like there can be a bit of racket in our temple. <laughs> in our bodies and Psalm 127 says unless the Lord builds a house those who labour, labour in vain you now the God given dominion that God's given us can get a little bit out of hand sometimes can't it and it, it's not just dominion anymore it's domination <laughs> it's world domination here's another one that can make a bit of racket in the temple inside of you, worry you don't have to put your hands up, but who knows about this one? You know, the place where we're meant to walk with God, be in communion with Him, can get pretty noisy, right? There's so much stuff to do. And uh, I think the irony of, of worry is the more you try to control it, the more you find out you need to control. And it gets, there's more racket inside this one's pretty straightforward um, sin how much sin have you got going on in there you know things that you just kind of give way to and it just makes a racket in there you know you think about your communion your enjoyment of God and there's nothing better than sin to bust that up Distraction, it's another one. Finding something else to do, you know. I don't know whether you've ever had it, but I've had it. I sit down to read the Bible and pray, and all of a sudden there's 25 things I think I'm going to forget to do if I don't do them right now. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And you can get up, you can go off, and you can do those things. And if you do that, all of a sudden there's a racket going on in the temple. All of a sudden there's a market going on in the temple. When there's meant to be communion and union and enjoyment of God. Television. Doing something in the shed. Netflix. Distraction. Make a racket in the temple. Lack of priority. You know, it's... Now, don't hear me saying getting on your case that you've got to get all your ducks in a row otherwise God doesn't love you but you know if you're married and you decide you're not going to listen or talk to your spouse for the next two weeks you're not going to have a very good relationship is anyone with me on that and it's the same with God if you if you don't sit down and listen to him talk in scripture and you talk to him in prayer well you're not going to have a very good relationship and you don't get to the end of it and go why am I so distant from God well you'd be distant from anyone if you did that be distant from anyone 
lack of priority, you fill it up with other things and you end up with a racket in the temple and God gets bumped. And this one uh, can happen in the church, right? We can do service without communion. We can be busy serving God and doing stuff and when it actually comes to being personal with him and connecting with him, uh, it's not happening. This is like um, service without sonship. Service without being a daughter. And I'm not saying that you're not a daughter or a son. You just operate like you're not a daughter or a son. You're like some kind of attendant. Some kind of worker, you know. I've got... I'm on a casual employment contract with Jesus. I provide this and he makes my life go well. It's like, well, that's not the deal. That's not what he wanted in the first place. That's what, not what he wants right now. You can serve God in a way that he's not your father. I want to finish with um, C.S. Lewis quote and then uh, a question and then I'm done. This is out of mere Christianity. The real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in simply, simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. And so on all day. Everyone say that after me. All day. All day. I should have said, say that with me. I confused it. Sorry about that. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings coming in out of the wind. Is that a beautiful, uh, beautiful picture? Would you like to come in out of the wind? I would. So, here's a question I'll leave you with. Do you need to cause a ruckus in your temple? If you've got a racket in your temple, you need to cause a ruckus in your temple. <laughs> okay? That's what Jesus did.